Well, I don't know how many of you like sermons on judgment, but tonight's the night. If you like it, you're going to be real happy. Uh, Look with me in Matthew 11, beginning in verse 16. This is some response to criticism that John the Baptist and Jesus have gotten. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by their deeds. Now at this point in Jesus' ministry, he had already validated uh, enough uh, of the points of prophecy that he obviously was the Messiah. They should have realized that, they should have known that, but the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they didn't want to accept that because that would have upset their apple cart. So they all said, no, there's something wrong here, something wrong here, and they kept being critical. Well, of course, when some are critical, other people pick it up, and so that's uh, what has happened. Uh, The Jewish people who witnessed all those miracles refused to realize and to claim Christ as their Lord and Savior. Some of those who refused to believe the gospel covered their unbelief with criticism. They just got real critical about things. Jesus compared them to foolish children sitting in the marketplace who objected to everything the other children did. It's like a lot of people today that find fault with various things. You know, if you're the leader of anything, you're going to get a lot of criticism. All my life, I've had uh, people telling me how to better do my job. All my life. I've had letters. I had, one time, I had a stack of letters that high of uh, people that had written me letters telling me how to do things better. And our church had doubled in size, and uh, our our salvations had doubled, our membership, every, I mean, everything was way, way up, everything that you can kind of plot. The spirit in the church was great, and yet I would get these letters. When I started uh, pastoring at uh, 19 years of age, I pastored this little country church outside of Waco, Texas. And I thought to myself, you know, I am going to make everybody here happy. And I'm going to be a real good friend to everybody here. Every single person here. I'm going to be a real good friend to every one of them. And so if I even thought that somebody might be a little bit irritated with me, I'd go to their house and sit down with them and pray with them. And visit, you know, just try and make it all right. And I did that for about three years there. And after three years, the same people that were mad at the start were mad at the finish. And I realized that some people just want to be mad. They want to gripe and they want to complain. And they're going to. And there is nothing 
that you can do to satisfy them. That's who they are. That's how they define themselves. Well, here are these uh, kids. They're objecting to what the other kids were doing. Uh, whether real or imagined or justified or unjustified, uh, some of the kids were rejecting the other kids. Some of the Jews were rejecting Jesus. Didn't matter what he did, what he said, how many people he cured, how many lives he saved, how their lives had been changed for the better, that didn't matter. They were still going to be very, very critical. Because they had no saving relationship with Christ, they refused his truth, and they refused to serve in the church. But they loved to harp against both of those things. The critics uh, wear you down. It's like uh, not being stabbed with a knife. It's like running through a briar patch. You have little ticks, you know, that uh, take a little blood out of you. Um, you know, that's, uh, that's what Jesus had. That's what John the Baptist had. That's what every preacher has had. That's what every president of the United States has had. You know, if you've ever led a company, that's what you had. If you've ever been a teacher, that's what you had. You know, parents would come that couldn't say a complete sentence without making a grammatical error, and they would tell you how their child was uh, learning no English at all whatsoever, and why didn't you do a better job at it? Well, you know what you need to do is try and build a group of people around you that are positive, that are positive people, that will build you up, that will share with you, that will cry with you, that will laugh with you, that will celebrate with you. That's what we all need. It is masochistic to try and please the critics. They don't want to be pleased. You can't please them. No way you can please them. Children played with each other in the marketplace where their parents would go in to sell things and buy things and uh, visit and stuff like that. There were two games that they used to play back then. There was the game of wedding and there was the game of funeral. Those were the two games that they played. Uh, the kids just loved those two games. Uh, those were the two major social events of that time in Scripture. Children like to mimic their uh, parents, their elders, by mocking uh, uh, them in some ways and doing mock weddings and mock funerals. Weddings involve festive music. You know kids love that. So they would hold their hands up and turn around and do this and kick, you know, and all that. They would do all these things, and, and they, if they could get somebody to play some kind of instrument, boy, that was really great. And they would play wedding, and it was a lot of fun. They'd dance a lot, do a lot, trying to, to mimic uh, what the adults did. And then they would play funeral. And uh, when you played funeral, you had to mourn. You had to be a good mourner, and the kids would, you know. They would mourn and cry and yell. And then you had to wail. Now, you know some people can really, really wail. Have you ever heard some of those people? I mean, they can really wail. I've heard them. Uh, 
have you ever been to a funeral in New Orleans? Have you ever been to one? Anybody ever been to a funeral in New Orleans? I have. They hire some whalers. And those people can scream louder than anything you can imagine. And they can do it for ten blocks. Just wailing, yelling, screaming, carrying on. It's unbelievable. Well, uh, there were always holdouts who refused to get along with the rest of the children. If one group said they wanted to play wedding, the other group would say, no, we want to play funeral. You know, they never would agree. They were peevish. They were perpetual spoil, spoil sports. They threw a blanket over what the other group wanted to do. Jesus applied the first illustration in response to the people that were criticizing John the Baptist. When John came, neither eating nor drinking, you know, he didn't drink any alcohol, and he didn't eat anything other than bugs and honey. That's all he ate, locusts and wild honey. That's all he ate. Um, well, they couldn't, they couldn't uh, get with that program, and they didn't want to get with that program. So they said, there's something wrong with him. I bet he has a demon in him, a demon. And that's what they started saying. All the critics, they got together and said, he's got a demon in him. That is what is driving him, a demon. Well, the phrase, neither eating nor drinking, was a figurative description of John the Baptist. He lived a very, very austere lifestyle. He didn't dress like they did. He didn't eat like they did. He didn't talk like they did. He didn't live where they lived. He lived out in the wilderness. I mean, he was really different. Uh, his message was serious and severe. He cried out for repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And I mean, he really laid it on them. If somebody that was there, you know, everybody knew everybody back then. I mean, everybody in the town knew everybody else. Towns weren't that big, and uh, they knew what they were doing. You know, they would gossip. They, you know, the gossip would get around. John the Baptist would hear about it, and then if one of those people came out to hear him preach, he'd say, I hear you're sleeping around. I hear you're a crook at the games that we play. I hear that you're a liar and that you beat your wife. You know, he'd point them right out. He'd put his finger right in their face. And then he'd yell it out where everybody could hear it. I mean, he was really something. Well, John's message was a way of life that was kind of more in the funeral mode. Uh, some people became so resentful of his continued emphasis on repentance and judgment that they charged him with having a demon in him. That was their charge. He grated against their immorality and their unspiritual nerves. And so they all got together and they rallied against him. They tolerated him for a short while. They enjoyed the novelty at first. He was unlike anybody else. And he was a great speaker. He, I mean, he would draw tremendous crowds. And at first it was kind of exciting. But then he started calling them out and their sins. Boy, they didn't like that. 
Instead of accepting John's rebuke of their wickedness, they rebuked his righteousness. They turned it around. They charged the prophet had no equal, which he didn't. They said, it's because you're controlled by a demon. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the finest man ever born of woman. Boy, they didn't like that. Because they all thought that they were the finest thing that had ever been born of woman. They charged the prophet who had no equal with being demon-possessed. Now Jesus applied the second illustration to respond to what they were saying about him. Look at the next verse. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Well, uh, Jesus ate and drank like the people of that day did. Nothing special, nothing different. Just like they did, like everybody else. In contrast to John's ascetic lifestyle, Jesus participated in things that were going on. He went to weddings, went to funerals, he visited people, he uh, traveled out throughout most all of Israel. He went from city to city, village to village, synagogue to synagogue. He preached in most of them. He had individual, intimate contact with hundreds and hundreds of people as he saved them from dying from some horrible disease. He would reach out and touch them and change them, heal them. He forgave their sins. He called them to follow him. He knew a lot of those people. Just as John had the funeral mode, Jesus lived in kind of the wedding mode. Uh, Jesus' critics ridiculed and exaggerated his normal activities. They said, he's a gluttonous man and he's a drunkard. Well, he wasn't uh, either of those things. But they, they didn't care. They said it anyway. You know, I didn't marry until I was 50. And uh, every once in a while, not very often, but every once in a while, I'd hear somebody saying I was gay. And uh, you can ask my wife about that. I am anything but gay. And, uh, it, you know, it really irritated me. But, how, I mean, do you want to get up in a big meeting and say I'm not gay? You know, how do you defend yourself against that? It's real hard. You know, it's real hard. The second charge was that Jesus was a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Well, that was true. He was a friend of those people. But the, the ones that were being critical of him were saying, he, he gets involved in their sin and in their wickedness. He's a terrible person. He's involved in all these shady things that are going on. Well, that was a lie. Jesus was a friend to them because he was trying to change their destiny. He was trying to help them be a believer, help them toward righteousness, help them toward godliness, help them toward uh, being a good parent, a good child. He, he was trying very hard. He, he not only did not participate in their sin, but he offered them deliverance from it. 
Jesus' unnamed critics were not interested in truth or justice, but in condemnation. They wanted to put Jesus and John the Baptist down. Jesus and John the Baptist were enemies of traditional religion. In that day, there had been an elevation of human wisdom way over the Scripture, way over anything that was of divine nature. They didn't like that because that called them toward righteousness. So they hated that. Corrupt human wisdom produces corrupt human deeds, such as the false accusations against John and Jesus. On the other hand, the righteous, divinely empowered wisdom of John and Jesus produced righteous deeds. It produced repentance. It produced forgiven sin. It produced redeemed lives. But they didn't want to talk about that. They wanted to pick and gripe complain. Through the centuries, the church's detractors have found it very, very easy to criticize the leaders of the church. They found it very, very easy to criticize the way that the church does its activities. Now, I want to confess tonight, I have been very critical of some of the preachers on TV. I have. And I I think I'm right in doing it because I think a bunch of them are charlatans. And I, I hope I haven't done anything wrong there. But, uh, you know, that's the way I see it. Not only did Jesus receive criticism, but he also was treated with indifference. Now look at verse 20. Then Jesus began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For it is the miracles that have occurred in Tyre and Sidon which occurred in you. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now that's strong. That couldn't be much stronger. If you like judgment, I mean, just read those verses over and over. I mean, there is judgment galore in there. Jesus' harsh reproach against the cities in which most of his miracles was done uh, seems on the surface to be less justified than his comparatively mild rebuke of those that openly criticized him. For the most part, the three cities mentioned here, which typified the places where his miracles were done, didn't take any direct action against Jesus. They didn't uh, throw stones at him. They didn't try and kill him. Uh, 
they didn't try and kill his disciples. They didn't, they didn't do any of those things. They simply ignored him. They ignored him. While the Son of God preached and taught and performed unprecedented miracles right in the midst, they carried on their business. They went about their daily stuff, their daily routine. They ignored the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They carried on seemingly unaffected by Jesus at all. Years ago, I was pastoring a church in another state, and there was a group in our church that I knew um, went out and partied every Saturday night. You know, a lot of people in the church told me about it. And I knew who they were. It's about five guys in the church. And they would come to church on Sunday morning because their wives wanted them there. And, uh, and they would sleep. They would all sleep through my whole sermon. And... Uh, you know, every once in a while, I would go by after church, and I'd say, uh, how you feeling? I thought you might be sick. You look like you might be sick to me. I knew they weren't sick. <laughs> they were just, they were just uh, worn out from uh, partying the night before. They, they weren't learning any value system at our church. They weren't uh, learning any principles for positive living at our church. They were sleeping through all Sunday morning. They got, I'd say, 50, 55 minutes of uh, great nap. Uh, indifference is a form of unbelief. You know that, I'm sure. It is so completely uh, disregards God that he is not even an issue to them worth arguing about. They're indifferent to that. They, they, not, uh, they do not take the Lord seriously enough to criticize. They're just not involved. They're not involved with that. Indifference to the Lord will continue until he returns. It's going to continue until the rapture. No question. Uh, just as it happened in the days of Noah. I can't imagine all the flack that Noah got. I mean, he got it. You know, he's building this great big boat. It had never rained. Here's this giant boat that he's building. People come up and say, are you crazy? You know, what are you doing? You're working real hard on this for years and years and years and years. All the time, criticizing, criticizing, criticizing. And then you know the story. Well, you know what happened one day? It started raining. And at first they thought, well, this is interesting. Then it rained some more and some more and some more. And uh, then they started getting a little worried because there was some creeks and rivers that hadn't been there before. And then the door shut to the ark. And then they died. They died. They drowned. Well, um, most of the people in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot, you remember what happened with Lot, they paid no attention to the Lord or to his servants. They too were totally destroyed because they rejected God just as totally as those who actively expressed their unbelief. 
Probably most inhabitants of Chorazin and Bethsaida had personally witnessed a lot of miracles. They'd seen Jesus doing all these things. They knew about his mighty works from the reports of friends and relatives, and they'd seen a lot of them. But the number of people that responded by changing their heart, changing their their whole being, was relatively few. Relatively few. When people have great opportunity to hear God's word and even see it miraculously demonstrated right in front of them, right in front of them, their guilt for rejection is intensified immeasurably. I mean, those people are going to be judged in a very, very harsh way, as Jesus says in this passage. It is far better to have heard nothing of Christ than to hear the truth about him and then reject him. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. In other words, Jesus' death does not apply to them. But a certain terrifying expectation of judgment is on the way. The greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. The greater the light, the greater the punishment for not receiving the light. Now those of you that have been in church all your life, you're going to be graded on a different scale than the person that might have heard one TV show by Billy Graham 30 years ago, and that's the only contact they've had in their whole life with the Lord. We've, we've got to be more responsible because we know more, we've been around more, we've been exposed to more, we've had a Bible to read, we've had Christian people to build us up, lift us up. Jesus' marvelous work should have shaken them to the foundation, every Jew in Galilee, but it didn't. Most of them were indifferent to him. Most Galileans did not respond to Christ at all, much less repent. The self-righteous traditional religion of the Galilean Jews blinded them more to God (coughs) than the heathen religions did to the Gentiles of Tyre and Sidon. Those chosen people had so long rejected God, just flat out rejected him, that his word, uh, they were just totally indifferent to that. They were totally indifferent to his messiahship when he came close to them. Jesus here makes two truths clear. Now, I don't know if all of you will agree with me, but I believe it, and I think I'm right. If you disagree with me, I think you're wrong. How's that? I believe there are degrees of heaven and degrees of hell. Now, if you don't believe that, you can criticize me later. But uh, I believe that. Um, and, and I think this very passage teaches that. It does. I don't think there's any question about it. Among those given the most severe punishment will be those that have received the divine revelation 
and have been the most religious and the most outwardly upright, those who thought they were eternally safe because they were Abraham's physical descendants and because they kept many of the religious traditions of their neighborhood, of their day, they, of course, looked with contempt on all the Gentiles. Yet in hell, many Gentiles will look down on those Jews. In another city of Galilee, they were even more guilty. And you, Capernaum, look at the verse, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. Jesus made his headquarters in this beautiful, prosperous fishing village. If you've been on one of those uh, trips to the Holy Land, you've been uh, in Capernaum, uh, no question, because that's where Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount. That's on the north side, northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. You've been there. If you went over there, you've been there. Uh, That's where the city was. He performed more miracles and preached more of his sermons in and around Capernaum than any other place. That's where he did most of his work. It was there he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. It was there he healed the nobleman's son. It was there that he healed the demoniac. It was there that Peter's mother-in-law, the woman with the hemorrhage, the two blind men, the centurion's servant, the dumb demoniac, and the paralytic was lowered down through the roof. All of those things happened in and around Capernaum. And those people had seen those things. They were there. Yet those marvels had little impact on most of the citizens of Capernaum. And because of their indifference, they would not be exalted to heaven as they thought they deserved, but rather, Jesus says, they will be descending down into Hades. I mean, he is really letting them have it. Capernaum exceeded Chorazin and Bethsaida in privilege, and Sodom exceeded Tyre and Sidon in wickedness. But these striking and sobering contrasts, Jesus makes plain that people who are the most blessed by God will receive the most punishment if they reject him. Judgment against moral abominations of Sodom will be exceeded by uh, judgment against the spiritual indifference, indifference of those in Capernaum. Well, let me wind this up. Of course, Sodom was destroyed. Uh, So you say, well, good night. These other people had it worse than Sodom. They they died in fire and brimstone. Um. A greater judgment, a greater destruction came to those that were indifferent than to the people that just just paid no attention to the Lord whatsoever. There are a lot of people across America that are indifferent to the Lord right now. There are all these groups springing up against Christianity. They want to do away with the cross, do away with all the... Ten Commandments things. Do away with all of that. There is going to be a severe judgment 
for those people. I mean, severe. Worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Worse than that. They will never enjoy the bliss of a blessed life here on earth or the joys of heaven in the hereafter. Well, tonight, if you're in the house and you would like to make public your profession of faith in Christ, we certainly want to give you an opportunity to do that. If you're in the house tonight and you'd like to join our church, we'd love to have you. The doors of the church are now open. We want you to come and join with us and serve with us in this place. This is a great church. We'd love to have you be one of our brothers, one of our sisters. I'm going to stand down here at the front. We're going to stand and sing, and I'll wait on you to come and make a decision for Christ. Let's stand right now as we sing together.